0: Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Abbott Kaler. Abbott Kaler, formerly writing as Karen Abbott, is the New York Times bestselling author of Sin in the Second City, American Rose, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, and The Ghosts of Eden Park, which was an Edgar Award finalist for Best Fact Crime and a finalist for the Ohioana Book Award. Her next nonfiction book, Then Came the Devil, is forthcoming in 2025. She is also the host of Remus, the Mad Bootleg King, a forthcoming podcast from iHeartRadio about legendary Jazz Age bootlegger George Remus. A native of Philadelphia, she lives in New York City and in Greenport, New York, where she is at work on her next novel. Her latest is Where You End, her debut novel in which an unusual form of amnesia upends the lives of identical twins, forcing them to face the indelible, dangerous shadow of the past. Welcome, Abbott.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay.
0: This is so exciting um i I mentioned already that I love Sin in the Second City and knew you as a nonfiction author and was so stoked that you are pivoting into fiction so um what a treat for me today. Oh,
1: thank you. It's a treat for me to be here, and I'm glad you enjoyed Sin. It was a fun book to write Oh, yes, um,
0: for any listeners who haven't read it, I'm sure there's very few. uh, go get that <laughs> book. It's so good. Chicago's <laughs> such a wild place, yeah, definitely. Um, you're here to talk about where you end, which is your debut novel, and yeah just out two weeks ago, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Uh, I feel like it's doing really well. um, there's so much buzz, people are loving it. How oh, do you thank feel? You. How do you feel having it out?
1: You know it was really terrifying and and scary to make the pivot from nonfiction to fiction. It's just an entirely new world with uh-huh. new uh you know the the process itself was kind of really. Uh, wild to, to make that transition but my bar was set pretty low I mean my bar was set for I hope nothing terrible happens <laughs> and, and so far nothing terrible has happened and a, and a few nice things have happened you know it was a GMA buzz pick and a CBS book club <gasps> pick and a people magazine pick and an Amazon pick and a couple other things and the New York Times just gave it a nice review in this little, little roundup Oh my uh, God. I, was, I was super psyched about. So yes, yeah, so, so far it's 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 better than I expected. Which is about in publishing all you can, all, um, you know, the, the best you can do for.
0: You're a pro for going into it thinking like that because that's exactly <laughs> the right mindset. And then everything that happens is just gravy, right? Like it's exactly.
1: Just, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. You you just have to go into it expecting nothing.
0: The People Book of the Week, I feel, is like the pinnacle for me because yeah. I remember my whole life being like, Ooh, what is, what books are people recommending? You know, like this is going to be yeah. good.
1: Yeah. So I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I try to keep myself in the dark as much as possible.
0: <laughs> That's for the best. That's for the best. Yeah. Let the business people do the business and the creative exactly. people can do the creating. <laughs> um, But I would love for you to read a little bit of it before we get started. If, if that works.
1: Sure. I will start with the prologue um, just to set the scene. Uh this is, um, the book is set uh, in two different timelines, the 1980s and the 1970s. And it's uh, back and forth between two identical twin sisters, Cat and Jude. So the prologue starts with Kat in um, March of 1983. Cat, now, the night of the accident, March 1983. It was just like me to go ahead and die, leaving her behind. That's what i hear her say if I could hear her at all. Foolish, careless, typical expected even, another instance in which she was forced to clean up my mess and to my mistakes. Her guillotine voice would curse me in the sweetest tones. She would softly rake her bloody fingernails against my lifeless arm. She would say all the right things to lure me back and keep all the wrong things to herself. On that night, we left the old neighborhood just as the rain began to fall. I ran first. I've always gone first, leading her back the way we came, through a colony of dusty relics across a lush runway of grass down a street where the homes are crowded with ghosts. I was not right. There was a pulsing inside my head, the temple and weight of a thousand percussive drums, but I convinced myself otherwise. Let my mind talk me into believing my own lies. As we set off, me behind the wheel and my twin sister by my side, the rain stopped and I felt a shivery relief. The clouds cleared and the full moon shot its light through the privy branches, illuminating the road. I saw the dearest body right before I swerved hard right. Its long neck snapped and naturally back. Then came a tree and a sheet of glass and the feeling that my head had launched away from my body, soaring into the sky, too far for me to retrieve it. I had time to form one last thought before my mind emptied itself of all things. She will know how to fix me. There you Thank go. You so <laughs>
0: much, what a good little taste of what's to come.
1: Yeah, I thought that was a fun place to start because, um, you know, Kat knows that Jude is the only one who can fix her, and Jude realizes that she is the only one who can remake Kat In her words. She wants to remake her sister.
0: I can't even imagine where... That feels like such an ambitious uh, story to go for. Um, Like, it it almost gives me anxiety. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, you know, it was inspired by, inspired by Troves.
0: Yes, I read that, um, but I couldn't, I, I, from the little Googling that I did, I never let myself find out too much about a book before I read it. So I would love to hear what, what that was based on.
1: Um. So, so yeah, it was, it was a fascinating documentary I happened upon in 2019. It was called Tell Me Who I Am. And it told the story of uh, two British identical twins, Alex and Marcus Lewis. And when Alex was 18, he suffered a motorcycle accident and had resulted in a traumatic brain injury. And when he woke up from his coma, the only things he remembered were Marcus's face and name, his twin brother's face and name. He didn't remember their history, any of their memories. He didn't remember any of their other friends. He didn't remember any, you know, other family members or anything from their past. He only remembered his brother's face and name. Wow. So in this tragedy, you know, Marcus saw an opportunity that he was going to reinvent his, his and his brother's past, you know, uh, make up a bunch of beautiful, lovely little lives and, and sort of try to, you know, create this entire life that they never actually lived. Um, and I was really, really fascinated by the idea of, of doing that. Um, and also thought about my own family. You know, my mom is an identical twin. Um, in fact, like the the you know, twins in the book, they're mirror, tw- she was a mirror twin. Mm-hmm. Um, which is this, you know, very rare phenomenon that happens when the embryo splits later than usual. And the result of that is that, you know, one twin will be left-handed, one twin is right-handed. They part their hair at opposite sides. Um, and looking at each other is akin to looking in a mirror. And my mother and her sister had this really freakish, incredibly close bond, um, including with the secret language that I sort of appropriated for the novel. Yes, and, yes I was going to ask you yeah, about that. And I was very curious, you know, what would my mom and her sister would have done in this situation? And, and just sort of got my imagination flowing from
0: that. It feels like the the actual story that you've based this on, that Alex and Marcus is sinister in a way. <laughs> but, and yeah. so I, I can see that, um, like I can see one of the things that happens as you read the book. And um, I mean, I guess we're going to have to talk about spoilers. So anyone who hasn't read it, go read it and then listen to this. Let's just get that out of the way. But I think there's like this, assumption that sort of builds as you're reading the book that Kat is sinister in some way. I'm sorry, not Cat Jude, that Jude yeah. is, um, like keeping things from Kat for a bad reason.
1: Yeah. Um, and I wanted that ambiguity. You know, I, I wanted people to not, you know, Oh, Jude is obviously lying. If Jude wasn't lying, there wouldn't be a book. Right. So we know, <laughs> we know Jude is lying, but we don't know why and exactly what she's lying about. And, um, you know, I wanted the reader to fill that suspicion along with Kat. And I think there's a point in the book where Kat says, maybe I remember Jude, not because she's my sister, and we share this really amazing close bond, but maybe my brain remembered her because it was a warning, you know, mm-hmm. that, that Jude is somebody Jude is somebody I should be wary of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted the reader to have that same feeling. And it was important to me that the reader, you know, Kat goes along for life, trying to relearn herself, trying to recreate her identity, and I wanted the reader to, to have those revelations along with the cat, trying to figure out who she was and what really happened. Has that ever
0: happened to you prior to that documentary where you thought, oh, my God, I think I could write a novel about this, but you didn't for some reason?
1: Yeah. I mean, I actually started out writing novels, well, not writing novels, but writing fiction when I was a kid. Um, you know, fiction was always my first love. Um, and I used to start, um, I used to uh, submit stories to Ellery Queen and Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine when I was mm-hmm. little, you know, like 10 or 11. Um, and I remember one in particular was called Tea with Mr. Roper. Uh-huh. Um, I like, like this. Oh, uh, you did? like. I'd love to, it's just so weird to think about now. Um, But, you know, every Gen X kid was obsessed with Three's Company. So my story was called Tea with Mr. Roper. And, um, you know, about this lonely widow who would invite her neighbor, Mr. Roper, for tea every day. and She would talk his ear off and about the good old days and her dead husband and all this. And, of course, at the end, the revelation is that Mr. Roper was a decaying corpse in her pantry. The best. Um, So good. Yeah, that she (laughs) was... she would trot out um you know every day for a spot of tea um and i you know i don't know why my mother didn't put me into therapy but and (laughs) shockingly shockingly none of you know mr roper was never published none of my stories were published but i accidentally fell into journalism from from fiction but fiction's always been in the back of my mind. i
0: think that's um like such a crucial part of childhood that we need to nurture because children, their imaginations are incredibly violent. <laughs> I just yes. know that from my own children. And <laughs> you can look at it one of two ways. One is, oh, oh, what's going on? What am I doing wrong? Or you can look at it like they're trying to understand the stakes, right? And yeah, like, stretching. And and I like what a boon that your mother and father were like. Eh, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, she's, she's figuring things out. It's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, my mother very much encouraged me and, you know, even wanted me to, yeah, I signed up for, you know, when I was 12, like a mystery writing class. And um, it got canceled. And I think I cried for like a week. But okay. my mother, my mother really nurtured my, um, my love for books. And, and for that, I'm forever grateful.
0: Yeah, I mean, look what she hath wrought, right? <laughs> like, yeah,
1: so but it's many also like... Books. In the 70s and 80s, I mean, the parents just didn't monitor what kids were watching. You know, I mean, I would watch the, the most horrific, violent movies and TV shows and nobody cared. Um, I think I, parents are much more, much more vigilant about that now. But I just remember watching, you know, Alfred Hitchcock all the time and um, things sort of creepy slasher flicks of the 70s. And, you know, it was just fine. It was all fine. <laughs>
0: it was fine. We, I, I watched The Shining when I was in second grade on a sleepover. Yeah. And I thought it was hilarious. And, you know, (laughs) it wasn't until I was an adult and watched it again and was like, oh, no, this is truly terrifying. But, like, kids (laughs) have access to this, like, other – like, we have access – children have access to this other aspect of life, I feel, than you know, that's closer to them than it is to an adult. And so I think we're – I don't know. In some ways – Better able to shake that off or? Yeah,
1: and we'd lose that. You know, it's true. Kids have, a, I, I think kids can interpret things in ways that are not, you know, that are different from what they're intended to be. Yes. Um, And that can either go very well or very badly. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. Children do have that sort of gift to do that.
0: It's similar to how a writer convinces themselves, like, yes. I will start this project.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, I will write a thousand words a day. Yes, Of
0: course, of course I will. <laughs> I am accessing an important childlike part of myself that needs to be answered. <laughs> what about this? Like, how did you keep yourself in this project? What What about it helped you bring it to fruition?
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I was working on a nonfiction book at the same time um, that I was under contract for and then the pandemic hit and I had not been able to go to any archives yet for nonfiction, for my nonfiction. So I was like, you know, crap, what am I going to what am I going to do? And, um, you know, I remembered the documentary a few months earlier and it was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to go for it. during the, this time when I can't go to archives, I'm going to keep writing and I'm going to start working on this book. And um, the interesting thing that happened during this process too was, you know, the book is a lot about nature. Where you end, you know, to specify is a lot about um, nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, is was Kat after her accident and her amnesia—is she the same core person she had been before, or are the Jude, lies that Jude is telling her um, going to reshape her into somebody new? You know, or does the amnesia, you know, sort of give her a, a blank slate in which mm-hmm. she forges something new and? During the writing of this book, I found out that my um, the man who raised me was not my biological father, um, and that my real father is a sperm donor. Oh my god! <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, so the question of nature versus nurture really, you know, started hitting home for me and um, wondering, you know, would I have been an entirely different person had the man who donated, you know, my biological father, um, if he had actually raised me? Um, and so it, it really like haunted me, and during the writing of this book. And I just wanted to keep going to sort of even answer these questions for myself in some small way.
0: Wow. That's that's
1: absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, it was weird. It was good though. <laughs> yeah. I it was it was a good thing to to learn finally, you know, at my you know, middle age, it's about time you would <laughs> I would learn the truth about that. Wow. Um,
0: I look forward to the nonfiction book about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is so I, <laughs> Yeah it's it's been interesting but but it's good it's all good. Did
0: it feel um like more freeing in a way to write fiction because you were sort of unencumbered by you know fact checking and you know yeah. like in some ways cat um like especially at the beginning when you're when she's just kind of like taking this step and following it to the next step and you know and she meets sab and yeah. just goes with sab and, and she's incredibly free um, and yeah. I and I wondered if that's how it felt for you as you were writing. Like I'm I'm kind of like a blank slate here, and I'm I'm crafting the world as I go.
1: Yeah, no, that's such a good question. You know, nonfiction. You know, it's uh, you can't write bad dialogue. You know, it's impossible to write bad dialogue in nonfiction. It, the dialogue is there, written out for you. You know, you can't make a wrong turn in the plot. The plot is uh, history has already written. a plot, um, but fiction. You know, it's liberating, but it's also terrifying. There's so many ways you can go wrong if you write bad dialogue, it's on you. If your Mm -hmm. plot takes a left turn, um, you know, it's on you. Um, And, but, but it was, you know, entirely different. You know, I, I, I'm a very, very uh, dedicated outliner with my nonfiction. Like I, I've written nonfiction outlines that are 110,000 words and all within the book themselves. And I tried to apply that to fiction and it doesn't quite work that way. You know, I, I do create this plot and these characters, um, and but they eventually start to rebel. And I know people that sounds weird because it's like well, how do these characters rebel? You're completely in charge of them, and that's true. <laughs> but I but I made them into something, and then they start to rebel if I if they you know I make them do something that's against the character I created. So yes, mm-hmm. it's still my creation, but I have to honor once they're created, you have to sort of treat them as it were factual real living breathing people. And you can't do anything that they wouldn't have done. Um, so I had to really refashioned my outline a few times, realizing that, you know, the things that I wanted them to do weren't going to be true to the characters I had created. So
0: it was a lot more
1: <laughs> difficult writing fiction. I, I have all the respect in the world for, for people who write fiction and have written many novels and really, you know, have honed the craft for that.
0: Yeah, I guess... <laughs> Like I'm thinking, I, I've tried before in my own novel writing to, to work with an outline. And it's always quickly abandoned. Because for the same reasons that you're saying, that you get to a point where you're like, well, I just made this choice because it came to me in the moment. And because of that, the rest of my outline is uh, going to have to be reworked or trashed.
1: Um, yeah. So, so are I'm... you a pantser
0: then? Are you a
1: total pantser? With a what? Oh, a uh, plotter versus pantser. Seat of the pants. You know, novelist. Oh. I've never heard like, of the term pantser. I absolutely well, love that. I, so, I, the novel, My novelist friends who talk about it, they they ask, are you a pantser or a plotter? So if you're a plotter, you're, you do do the outline. And you try to really adhere to the um, narrative you have in mind. And A pantser, writing by the seat of your pants and just seeing where the characters take you. Yes,
0: um, absolutely. I'm yeah. going to use that. I'm teaching a class on the novel. I'm going to use that tomorrow night when I yeah. my students. I'm absolutely a pantser. i uh, proud pantser. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I think <laughs> you need a t-shirt you need a t-shirt I do <laughs> um I think because it starts it often starts with character or um or voice and it doesn't start so much with plot for me yeah yeah um but it sounds like for for this novel at least you had this plot that you but on the same token you had these very distinct characters
1: um yeah of, I think it was equal equal on this one you know I, I the, the plot was there and the, the characters were there Yeah.
0: How did you come to their voices? How did you, you know, their, and and I I guess, you know, it's, it's kind of a a loaded question because Kat is sort of discovering her voice as she goes, but how did you keep yourself tuned into like what their voices would be?
1: Well, I had them in mind and, um, you know, and I found this in my, in my life with my mom and her sister. Uh, one of them was more outgoing and more boisterous and more lively and more welcoming and warmer. And the other was a little bit, you know, still a lovely person, but just not as uh, demonstrative, I guess, with it and a little shyer, a little quieter, a little more reserved. Um, and so I very much had that in mind with Kat being the more sort of extroverted one and Jude being the more reserved one. And I wanted Kat to be the extroverted one because you know, she's the one who needs to go out and figure out who she is. And um, in order to do that, I think you do have to have, in order to do that freely and fearlessly as she does, um, you really have to have, you know, the intrinsic personality that says, I'm going, I'm going to detective, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to talk to people, I'm going to investigate. um, And I I really wanted her to have that personality because it's also, I thought, and I, I tried to sort of, put a sense of danger in there, you know, like here's somebody who will literally do anything to figure out who she is and where's that going to leave her. Um, and what, what trouble might she get herself into? And of course (laughs) she does eventually start getting herself into trouble.
0: She absolutely does. And, and it is, it, it is, um, it's, it's very anxiety inducing to follow her around. And especially she starts, um, you know, she's, I, I love how she'll say, okay, there's another thing I learned about myself. I am someone who, you know, Um, Yeah. Likes to do new things or whatever. Um, Yeah. But, uh, you know, one point she smashes this curio cabinet and takes out a preserved heart. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, it's this extreme act that she does. And, you know, sort of up until then, you're kind of like, what's with Jude? You know, like, where's Jude going? Like, what's actually happening? You know? Yeah. And then, and then you're like, oh, wait a second.
1: (laughs) What? Yeah. You know? Yeah, so it, it was also, you know, a question of like, you know, the body remembers, you know, her mind forgets, but there was also the of a very interesting question, you know, about what your body holds on to, um, trauma memories, repressed feelings, um, and you know, cat here's cat, this boisterous, lively, friendly person, just you know, doesn't seem to have any, you know, fear of anything, um, and she starts behaving in these erratic ways that she can't understand, you know. And, here she is with this sweet new romance, and she's very interested in this guy and she's happy. Um, and then suddenly, you know, she's she's acting violently and she doesn't understand why. Um, and uh, I, I really like to explore, you know, the the idea that here here she is this intrinsically good-natured person um, who has clearly, you know, some kind of dark side that's just starting in, to bubble up and to the surface. And how is she going to grapple with that? And what does that actually mean in terms of, you know, what had happened to her and what her history truly was despite what she was telling her
0: I love that and you're riveted like trying to figure it out along the way because it's it's so shocking and so over the top that you're like oh my god I got you know like <laughs> and I love that Sab takes her to anger management I know. <laughs> it, is so, it is so good it is so precious it just makes you like him all the more
1: <laughs> I know I know Sab is such a sweetheart and and just you know how many chances was it gonna give her and, and uh you know, I i won't spoil it or anything, but uh I kind of like how Judah inserts herself in that relationship at some point. Um and uh because the, the twins can't exist without inserting themselves into each other's lives.
0: hmm hmm.
1: Where did
0: their mother come from for you and the cult? <laughs>
1: So the mother, of course, is also inspired by a true person, which happens to be Mama Rose, the mother of burlesque star Gypsy Rose Lee. Oh, um, yes. if, you're, if your listeners aren't familiar with Gypsy Rose Lee, she was an iconic burlesque performer and general entertainer of the 20th century, one of the big uh, American icons of the 20th century. And she had this horrific stage mother. Um, and if you haven't seen the, the show, you should you should watch it. It's you know, she even has her own song, Rose's Turn. Um, she was somebody who had more an ambition and you know, this desire for stardom that never materialized and um, and that's what I was thinking of for Cat and She's mother Verona um, she is larger than life um, and I think she is a broken person in many ways and loves her daughters in the best way she knows how but is not capable of true love um, unfortunately And um, and the cult <laughs> was also inspired by a couple of true uh, real life cults. One of them was um, EST and her training seminars, which eventually became the forum. Um, but I was really fascinated by the 1970s uh, time period where all of these human potential movements sprung up. And it was so different from the 60s. You know, it had a little bit of flavor left over the 60s. There was the bohemian attitude and sort of this openness and um, a little bit of, uh, you know, desire to change the world and that kind of thing. But in the 70s, it started becoming monetized in a way that it wasn't in the 60s. And it was kind of Dale Carnegie meets um, Zen Buddhism. You know, there there's a piece of enlightenment, but you're going to make money from it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I did a lot of research in the EST and Werner Orford, who actually actually was from my hometown, which I thought was interesting. And there was also a um, Upper West Side cult, Upper West Side in New York City, called the Sullivanians, um, which preached that the um, family unit, you know, the traditional family unit was destructive and should be destroyed. And you can't, you know, go on a path of true enlightenment in that kind of structure. So it was really a combination of those two things. But, um, you know, I I was very interested in this sort of banal, but like strangely powerful verbiage that they memorized and internalized these sayings and phrases and um, in EST, the phrase was, do you get it? And, you know, it was like, what is it? And the joke is that there is no it. You know, it is what you think it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was kind of really, you know, the circuitous uh, meaning of, of really nothing. Um, but it but it made people, you know, think they were in control of their lives in a way that, you know, they, they were before the seminar.
0: Like what you think is. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. And it's so interesting when there's children involved um, and what happens to the children in, in cults and um, yeah. how they fight back or they don't or they, they you know, go along with it or they even, um, you know, take a, 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 like, a role of power in the cult. Um, right. I was just reading that during the pandemic, online cults, like, exploded.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I did and- not know that
0: there's um there one of them is the twin flames i'm sure you've heard of the twin flames yeah. people um which i think kind of got really like much bigger during the pandemic but yeah I, I think there's like this this comfort in um like someone telling you what to do <laughs> i don't I, I think about like how there's been all these like studies that people actually prefer autocrats versus yeah. true democracy and, you know, like how that might be informing our political climate right now. Um, yeah. But there's a there's like a kind of a parallel with what's happening between Kat and Jude, which I thought was so interesting. Because Kat has to place her trust completely in Jude and Jude's interpretation of the world as, you right. know, as happens in a cult. Um, and, you know, like, it's so interesting how sometimes that is something you have to do. And sometimes you have to fight against it. And if yeah. you're, you know, like Kat's true nature is to fight against it. Um, and why that is. And I, I don't know. I thought that was fascinating.
1: Yeah. I never even thought about that. The, the their lives, their separate lives, you know, their lives together were sort of a parallel to that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's so true. I, I think that, you know, in, and in the case of Cat and Jude, Jude is telling her how the world is. Um, the cat is questioning it. Um, and she wants Jude to fill in the blanks of her identity. She's depending on her to tell her how the world is. But what happens when cracks appear in that narrative? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and, and what happens when the version of the world that you're hearing doesn't really square with what you're seeing and experiencing out in the world when you go poking around a little bit? So I, you know I, I very wanted to you know get, uh, get across the idea that cat is really dependent on Jude and trust her. and, and the minute that trust breaks, what does cat have? You know, she has absolutely nothing. Jude is the only the only you know um, word she could trust or so she thought. Um, and, uh, you know, as we learn that, you know, once she pulls with the of that tapestry, it just sort of, everything starts
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard to put into words the connection that twins can have. Um, yeah. I mean, you have actual access to twins in your life that, you know, are very close to you. I, I think about this writer, um, Maurice Meyer, who is a twin, I, I believe they're identical twins and she has a whole. Um imaginary life with her sister that's incredibly crucial to her um her writing life um, oh that's so interesting i don't know her work you'll have to, oh I'll my god yes it's, it's it's so dark and um and she's she's someone who absolutely uh issues the idea of writing from her actual life, which i think oh it's so fascinating everything is yeah. um, something that she's you know built whole cloth from her imagination uh but the imaginary world she lives in with her sister is different than what she's creating in her writing. But her sister is also uh like her main editor and and collaborator there. Um, and and the way that she talks about it is so uh so fascinating and um wonderful and strange. And I and I think it can be hard for a non-twin to understand that. And I, you know, like you yeah. you, know, you do that so effortlessly here. Is it because you were watching your mom your whole life, or what do you think it was?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think um, you know, my mom—they—they they were so close. You know, they—they they did have a language when they were young that uh, inspired the language that's in the book. You know, was it just like those,
0: those. I was trying to figure out the the um, the formula for it. It's like you move the the second to last letter, right?
1: Yeah, so, I, I you just move letters around into the way that I think seems intuitive. Um, okay. There wasn't any. Like you know, you, you know, like the letters just go where they, it seems like they should go. If you were going to make them another word, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there wasn't any like power notes that you have to move it two spaces over or three spaces over. But they, they even if it's you know, its just they understood it. Um, and you know, if somebody else studied it, I'm sure they could sort of get the hang of it. But it just sort of came naturally to them; it was intrinsically theirs. And um, it was it was important for me to to honor that in the book. Um, you know, and I, I, I did a lot of research on twins. It wasn't just, you know, looking at my mom and her sister, it was studying like twins in history. And, you know, there's this whole question of, um, the shadow self, you know, the gothic trope of twins is, is famous throughout literature. Um, you know, Freud wrote about the uncanny and why are we so fascinated? Why are twins creepy? You know, why do we find <laughs> them creepy? And it's it's I think it all boils down to that topic idea of the of the shadow self and the shadow self you know usually being something that's a harbinger of doom you know this this second version of yourself that you're not quite sure what they're doing you, you know that they might be menacing they they, they might you know there's a part of yourself that you're not quite fully in charge of and the idea of that was just always inherently scary and um, you know I I was fascinated by the idea of what happens when the shadow self doesn't exist? You know, cat's cat as a shadow self her, was entirely a race. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what w- what grows out of that? Um, and so I, I wanted to sort of upend the whole trope about the shadow self and and write about, you know, twins where the shadow self would seek to exist.
0: It makes me feel like I should have a shadow self. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like there's Maybe we that... should all. <laughs> We should all have a shadow self. Yeah,
0: I'm just going to pretend like I have one. You know, I had an imaginary friend (laughs) as a child. I'm just going to bring that imaginary friend.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. There you go. I mean, so so then in a way, you're you know you're upending it yourself, but it's a comfort. Shadow self becomes a comfort. It's kind of like no matter no matter what path I'm on, I'm not alone. Um, And there's going to be somebody to have my back. If I do make a wrong turn, my shadow self is going to write me. So, you know, and, and sort of put me back on track and, and I, you know, I think you can look at it either way. And, and of course, in the course of where you end, you know, Pat is worried that her shadow self is dark. And then she, and then she worries that it's, you know, light or, or, or I mean, she, she worries that it's not going to um, save her and she's going to destroy her. And she sort of fluctuates back and forth with these two versions of the shadow self.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the structure and about revising. Um, okay. Because- there are so many pieces that you're, that you're working with that I want to talk about, like when you decided to, to make it this structure where we get Jude in the past and we get Kat in the present. Um, and, and what that was like to make sure that everything was sort of working together and braided the way that you wanted it to,
1: how did you, how did you do it? Well, that's a good question, because it goes back to the outlining. You know, once I realized that I I couldn't really adhere strictly to a a perfect outline, it was going to be,
0: you know, mutable,
1: and I was going to move things around. I realized it might behoove me, though, to have two timeline outlines. So I had an outline for the 1970s chapters, and I had an outline for the 1980s chapters of what you know Kat was doing here and what Jude was doing there. And that way, it, like, allowed me to merge the chapters in a chronology that made sense and um you know look for ways that i could do cliffhangers or or sort of um where the narrative would would piece together in a way that for maximum effect or maximum suspense um and so i had a lot of fun doing that because if i just wasn't feeling the 70s to one day i just went on to the 80s and Mm. talked about cat in the present day and if i you know was it a more you know 70s vibe i would just do jude in the past and um you know, I, I had to spend time researching each hour. You know, I, I remember the eighties when I was a little kid. In the seventies, I was a really little kid, um, not even born in some of the chapters of the book. But um, you know, I had to research the slang for each hour, make sure I wasn't you know using something from nineteen eighty nine that weren't completely free. Um, I really tried to get the seventies uh, slang perfected, um, especially like you know uh, what slang kids would have used like Mm -hmm. I did a lot of research on specifically what children and high school kids were saying in the early 1970s because the adults because so many times there would be a newspaper article reported on slang and they'd say well the adults are still saying this but the kids say that's out of date and so I there was a couple times in the book where it was important to me to to you know point out that the adults were really really out of it (laughs) as they always are and, and the kids were saying this and I wanted to get this period details correct. And I, I'm sure that's a holdover of my nonfiction where, you know, you, you want it you, even though it's fiction, you want it to feel authentic and true. Yeah. I,
0: I feel like I have a grasp of what it would sound like and, and, and I would write it and it would be completely wrong. You
1: know, like <laughs> yeah,
0: it's filtered through so many different filters, like TV, pop culture, you know, like, I, yeah, exactly. You know, George
1: <laughs> Jefferson is in the book. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, uh, the <laughs> Jefferson's, you yeah. know, flow and just my grits and, I, you know, I did a lot of research into what the, what the shows were at the time and, and everything like that. But um, that was probably the most fun of all the things I I had to do.
0: I love any sort of historical fiction that is kind of like near history, right? Like history. Yeah. That you can almost remember her. Um, yeah. And so it's a, it it just
1: recently, I feel that the 70s and 80s are considered history. You know, it's kind of like only now is this like, oh, hey, this is vintage. This is history.
0: Isn't that weird? My husband was telling me he likes to tell me things like, um, we're further away from the TV show The Wonder Years than the Wonder Years was from the time period that they were uh living oh in. Oh God. The show. Oh God, that's terrifying. <laughs> Isn't that <it> terrible?
1: <laughs> I know. Yeah, that is <clears throat> awful.
0: Same thing with Dazed and Confused, which is just sickening. I, I mean, I dazed and confused is such a touchstone for me because I yeah. watched it all the time as a teenager and uh it felt like forever ago. And now it's we're so far removed from I don't know. I think it was oh, wow. ninety-five or something.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's terrifying, and it's and it's always interesting too how how generations will look like maybe twenty years to the past for their right. nostalgia. So you know, the kids now are like obsessed with the nineties, like completely yes. obsessed with the nineties fashion, music, everything. And I think about the happy happy days, you know, which is a show that aired in the seventies, but it was all about the fifties. Yes, and it just seems like this sort of recurring pattern. Right, where twenty years ago is the time we want to be nostalgic for um yeah so. I swear I, I drive
0: by high <laughs> I know school the kids, 80s are longer ago but yeah but it doesn't feel that way I drive by high school kids all the time and they look you could pick them up and place them in 1996 and it would look exactly the same they're yeah they are, it's the 90s all over except for the phones and the yeah um, the <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so when you have a draft of something. Do you have like a group of readers you send it to or do you <clears throat> go straight to your agent? Like what's what's that process like?
1: Oh, I have a group of novelists who had been reading my stuff, all my nonfiction they would read too, which was immensely helpful for me as somebody who wanted to write nonfiction that read like fiction. So they would tell me, you know, where I had an information dump you know, a nonfiction, you want to show off your research sometimes and you could go on for pages and pages about the most minute I mean, I remember what, for Sin in the Second City, I think I had two pages of about um, what kind of contraceptives were used in the 1900s mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff like that, which was fascinating, but I didn't need two pages of it. Um, I want those and, two pages. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Give me the, uh, I the index. <laughs> I know. I know. I should have just put it all in the end notes. Um, but they, they, they've they, been reading my stuff since I've been publishing and and they were immensely you know, helpful for this novel because they, you know, they could give me more advice, uh, concrete advice, because they they understood the structure because they worked with it when it fit themselves and the genre. And um, so I absolutely, uh, you know, they gave me tons of notes. I can't tell you how many times I, I threw out what I was doing and started again. Wow. In fact, after I sold the book, I threw it out pretty much <gasps> and started again. Oh my gosh. Um, no, I, I kept. The, I mean, the characters and the plot were the same, but I, I did a really thorough rewriting and clarifying and, um, you know, sort of rejiggered the cult a little bit and um, did, just did tons of rewriting, which, you know, is, is, I can't remember who said it, you know, writing is rewriting. Um, mm-hmm. The famous adage, who I can't remember who said it, but yeah, it's, it's, um, and I actually like rewriting uh, after a certain period of time, you know, it's, Luckily, my editor took seven months to get back to me with edits, and in that time period, I had a nice, good, long distance away from it. And when I when I got it in my hands again, I was like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> and uh, and and you know, immediately commenced on on uh, fixing a bunch of things.
0: Well, I think that's so important to point out because I think for a lot of newer writers, if they write the bad first draft or something they really don't feel connected to, it can feel like, well, that's it. I'm not yeah. able to do this thing that I wanted to do. But it is really true that it's, it's really fighting through that and, and like, you know, keeping going.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is, it's a valuable thing for people to learn. And, you know, I tell everybody to read several books on writing, including Bird by Bird, you mm-hmm. know, where um, she famously talks about the shitty first draft and don't be afraid of the shitty first draft.
0: And everything
1: and this shitty. Yeah, and draft. the shitty cover draft. Yeah, you're going to have several shitty drafts, and that's okay. um And you know, the more critical you are of yourself, the better you're going to become. And you know, it's I always tell people too to try to surround yourself with people who are more experienced than you, who you think are better than you, and, and that's the way you're going to get better yourself.
0: Is that true of the of the novelists in your in your reader group?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think we're all you know we're all pretty much on the same level. Um, writing wise, but they're far ahead of me in terms of knowing the genre of fiction and what you can get away with sometimes, but you can't. And I, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader of fiction. In fact, I read more fiction than I do nonfiction. Um, and so, you know, of course you learn by that too. Um, but, but they just sort of have a handle on the market and uh, in ways that I, I don't, you know, yet now I'm working on it, but you know, they, they just have more experience than I do.
0: Do you feel like dropping names?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, sure. One of my best friends and readers is uh, Jocelyn Jackson, who is a really amazing mystery writer, thriller writer. She she also has written a really great Southern fiction. Um, there is, uh, God, I, I also said my fiction to nonfiction people. Uh, Margaret Talbot from The New Yorker, mm-hmm. um, who's also really great. Um, Sarah Gruen, Waterfront, Frost, who's been a longtime friend and Sarah and Gruen? Reader. Yeah. I yeah. love her. Yeah, she's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm lucky, lucky to really have some some good friends who are brilliant, some brilliant writers. Everybody, go get
0: their books. Yeah, <laughs> go get their books. Um, I was really excited to see the word John in your novel. <laughs> <laughs> are you familiar? Are you where are you from? I live in Chicago. I grew up in Orlando, but I, um, I have some friends who are in Philly, and I visited. I love Philly. Um, yeah, it's and. Great. John is the best word and I feel like it's very underused although I don't know if Philly would want the rest of the world to use it. <laughs>
1: yeah oh I think now it's really it's really mainstream um, in a way in a way that probably annoys Philly Philadelphians um, yes. <laughs> but but back then in the early 80s I mean the etymology is a little bit disputed, but uh, a lot of people believe it actually came from New York and the word joint you know uh, hip hop um, in the early 70s or late 70s and early 80s we're using it's the joint. Uh, you know, the word joint was used a lot and uh, it eventually sort of morphed into John and then became, you know, in the Black community first. And then, of course, became a more catch phrase and embraced by everybody to mean it doesn't really mean people. It means, you know, it could mean anything really, but people, unless it's a side, unless it's a mistress or an affair person that's like, that's my side, John. But, um, but generally, just like, you know, oh, you know, you know, Steve tea thinks. I love that John. You know, that kind of thing. Yes. I, um, it's
0: a it's you can use it for so many different
1: Yeah, purposes. it's a catch-all. It yes. is it and it's wonderful. And I wanted it's... to get in the book because that was when it was really starting to, to come into come into popularity in the early 80s in Philly, I think.
0: Yes, so good. I was I was like I laughed out loud when I saw it because <laughs> what a delight. <laughs> yeah. Can I um, ask you about your name change? Or do oh, you sure. not want to talk about that? Okay. No, no, I can talk about it. It's such an interesting um, story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's actually uh, a very creepy story. Um I uh so it I God, what year was it? It was 2013. Um a reader emailed me and said, you know that if you Google yourself, you there's a result that comes up that said you died in 2010. And I sure enough, Googled myself, which I try never to do because it's, it's just masochistic behavior. But, um, you know, there was a picture of me, there was my alma mater, and it says, die 2010. And I was super freaked out by this. Like, where? what kind of algorithm or what happened to to make the search engine say that? And um, I actually happened to be trying to write fiction at the time and was thinking, well, it would be a good idea to write under a different name for a different genre. Um a lot of my old friends had already called me Abbott and Taylor is my husband's name. So it's like Abbott Taylor has a good ring, whatever. Um, And also I was turning 40 at the time. So I was like, I'm also in a big life crisis. I'm going to change my name. So I, I went down to the courts. This was like 2014, went to the courts, changed my name. I've been Abbott Taylor for 10 years now, Um, but I couldn't use it on my books. Um, You know, I was writing nonfiction. They're like, you know, you know, you're established as Karen Abbott. We don't want you to change it. Blah, blah, blah. But with the novel, it made sense for me to change it. And I also have a nonfiction book coming out next year. And I figure, well, if I start getting a momentum with the new name, I'm not going to go back and forth to confuse people. So I'm just going to write under Abbott Taylor from now on. But that is the creepy story behind <laughs> so, The and, Same change.
0: And you weren't able, there's like no one to go to to say, hello, I'm alive. Take care, yeah. you know, change this, right? Well, I
1: had to, I had to get a bunch of people to report um, that it was incorrect. Like, you know, you can do Google reports. Yeah. Um, and I had to just implore all of my friends and acquaintances to, to you know, get get it off uh, the internet that I was dead. Um, although I, quite, I kind of thought it was funny, you know, reports of my death are great, exaggerate, whatever. I thought it was kind of funny, but I screenshotted it. I still have it. Oh. Um, and it's just, I don't know, maybe I'll frame it one day. It's, it's yeah. kind of fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that is extremely... Is it, so there is like a woman, there's a woman named Karen Abbott who did die, right? Or is it really
1: referring to you? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Okay. I I really don't know. Um, Yeah. I think there was a Karen Abbott romance writer who I occasionally got mixed up with, um, like a British romance writer. Um, But I don't know. I, I actually couldn't find any website for her. I I found books with bylines and covers and they were being conflated with my books. Wow. Um, but I, but I never found any like website for her. So maybe she's been a ghost. I,
0: yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. I guess it was meant to be Abbott Kaler, such a great name. Karen Abbott's a great thank name. Abbott Kaler, also well, a great name. Well, thank you.
1: I mean, Karen <laughs> has now been appropriated and like, know. In, you know, sort of been <laughs> relegated to the dustbins of history, but, so, which is sad because, you know, it's a perfectly fine name. And uh, before that.
0: It's my mom's name, and I've always loved it. I always thought it sounded oh. like so strong and smart, and, and now, yeah. it's, now it's – And it's a
1: Danish. It's an old Danish name. You know, it's not – it's, you know, like I I actually did research for my, uh, my next nonfiction book, there's a Danish woman named Karen in the 1920s. Um, so it's it's sort of – it's just a shame because it was a beautiful name. Yeah.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you what – It's Then Came the Devil. Is that what you were just talking about? Yes. What's yes. that about?
1: So it's a true story of um, a group of people who leave Germany in the years leading up to World War II. You know, the chaos and unrest is starting to uh, go across Germany. And they have this grand idea to build a utopia in the remote Galapagos island of Floriana. Uh, And as utopias always do, it went horribly awry. (laughs) Um, It becomes a bit like adult Lord of the Flies. uh, Oh, my God. yeah, and um, my favorite character, possibly of all time, uh, was this woman named the Baroness, uh, who shows up with two boyfriends and a whip and mm. announces that she's going to turn the Galapagos into Miami, which, <gasps> as you can imagine, does not go over well <laughs> <No>. <laughs> with the rest of the people. So um, it's, it's an absolutely incredible story. I could not have written it as fiction. You know, the wonderful thing about nonfiction is that it does not have to be believable.
0: Right. You know, it's allowed
1: to be stranger than fiction. And uh, this is certainly that. So it's, it's slated to come out in May of 2025.
0: I cannot wait for that book. I cannot wait to read that. I, I've been fascinated by the Galapagos Islands forever.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting place. And Florian in particular is really creepy
0: um, and wonderful.
1: Oh, did to... I did. I oh. I did. And I possibly met everybody who lives on that island. <laughs> and, um But, you know, it's just really, it was completely abandoned in the 1930s and was very, and it's still not uh, heavily populated. There's a couple hundred people living there. I I think I met them all. Oh Um, my goodness. But it's a wonderful place and now they're doing really amazing conservation work.
0: I'm so happy that you came on and I'm so happy that Where You End is out in the world and that you've joined the ranks of the fiction writers. Yeah, thank you so
1: much, and, and your support and enthusiasm for my old work really means a lot to me. So.
0: Oh, of course, and for your your forthcoming work as well, I'm I'm a big fan. So thank you, thank you. <laughs>